This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, it's Thanksgiving Day in the U.S., and what better way to celebrate Thanksgiving Day with some reheated leftovers? That's so weird, because that's just what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. We went through our catalog of episodes and we chose a couple of topics that we did on food. Of course, strange, unusual takes on food. And so we hope you enjoy this reheated Thanksgiving version of the Box of Oddities. Don't forget your napkin. I'd forgotten how much I love watching Christmas Vacation with you because of your Aunt Bethany impersonation. <laughs> Thank you. Would you do a little bit of that for I don't, us? I can't think of a single thing that she says right now, so uh, I can't. Sorry. You, yes, you can. Uh, okay. Uh, Come on, you can I do it. I have to get into the, the okay. mode. I'm not even prepared. I wasn't Jesus, pre- Bethany. Is this the airport clock? Oh, that just warms the cockles of my heart. <laughs> and the, my cockles have been really cold lately. Sure. It's very similar to my uh, Lois Griffin voice. It is. Which, But that's more breathy. Let's do a side-by-side comparison. Okay. okay. Um, Aunt Bethany from Christmas Vacation. Is this the airport clock? And now Lois Griffin from Family Guy. Oh, Peter, yeah. I'm holding iced tea. <laughs> you are, you're correct. They're very similar. Oh, wow. My holiday season is complete now. Thanks. One of the things that uh, that we hear quite frequently, and it, it really uh, it makes me feel good, is when people say, by listening to the Box of Oddities, they learn a lot of great ice-breaking topics. Yeah. If they feel a little so- socially awkward, they can say things like, did you know tapeworms come out of your ass and can be up to 40 feet long? <laughs> things that they've learned by listening to, right. to the box of oddities. <laughs> what, t- things that you can use to make friends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I got to thinking about that and how it is the holiday season. And you're probably going to be interacting with people more than you normally would and probably seeing family members that you haven't 
seen for a while. Sure. And you're all trying to avoid the discussion of politics. Mm-hmm. Which, Inevitably. Which you should. And probably these get-togethers are all centered around food. Generally? Yes. Yes. So here are some interesting conversation icebreakers, little tidbits about the history of various types of foods. I love this. Just for the holiday season. I've been seeing a lot of memes lately about how people are socially awkward and uh, it's all like... um, you know, two people walking down the beach and it's like unsuspecting other party goers. And then this giant monster spider coming at them. And it's all like my awkward topics that I bring to the conversation. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's me. Uh-huh. And, mm. and me as well. Well, you're at your, your holiday party and you uh, you have maybe some, some bread and you're putting butter on it. You can say, did you know in ancient Ireland and Scotland, butter was so valued. It was such a, uh, an expensive commodity that it was used to pay rent and taxes. Wow. And so that'll divert the conversation. And you can, well, when other people start talking about it, you can back slowly out of the room. And find the dog to pet. Which is our go-to move. <laughs> I have many a party sat in the spare room with a dog and just talked to the dog and petted <laughs> it and controlled the music. And if that's not enough, while you're buttering your bread, you can say, you know that bread actually predates agriculture by 4,000 years. Oh, really? Yeah, archaeologists found uh, charred remains of bread that was 14,000 years old. Whoa. They found it at a uh, a site in Jordan that was occupied by hunter-gatherers 14,000 years ago. Charred, huh? Yeah, That's charred. too bad. Yeah. I was watching uh, Uncharted with Gordon Ramsay the other day, and he was in Alaska, and they were showing how you can be- ma- like bake bread in a pot next to a fire. And it's, I mean, I get that that's the kind of the nature of how food started being cooked, but it blew my mind. I was like, in a pot (laughs) near a fire? (laughs) What? (laughs) Salisbury steak. That's the steak that has gravy on it, right? Yeah. It was invented by James Salisbury as a treatment for his patients that were anemic, had uh, colitis, gout, rheumatism, tuberculosis and asthma. Oh, it was it was it was for Salisbury all of that. Salisbury steak cures tuberculosis. Yeah, interesting. Yep. Too bad nobody else picked up on that. Uh, he said his prescription was to eat it three times a day with lots of hot water to rinse out the digestive system. I have a quick question. Did Go. he have like a beef farm or something? Yeah. Also, because that seems yeah, he owned a steak in Hormel. No pun intended. <laughs> steak. Speaking of meats, okay, so let you know, cured meats are are a popular thing during the holidays. You know, people put out little like uh, what are the Hickory Farms platters? Yeah. you know, and sure, yeah, sure, chuchuri, whatever, sure, I don't know how to say it. Cured meats, mall kiosk food. <laughs> well, um, charcuteries. Is that how you say it? It doesn't matter. Go ahead, please Attila, continue. Attila the Hun's army had a really unique way of curing their meat. They put it between the horse and the saddle and rode on it. (laughs) (laughs) And the horse's salty sweat would cause the meat to cure and last longer. And also it was being tenderized while they were galloping around. Of course, they also get like Attila the Hun's ass sweat on it as well, too. I'm going to vote no on that. kind of their version of Salisbury steak, I guess. Fried mozzarella sticks. Ooh. 
cool girl. Yeah. When you think of those, you think of someplace like TGI Fridays. Correct. Or, yeah, yeah. The earliest known recipe for fried mozzarella sticks goes back to the 15th century France. Really? Where they were prepared in an iron skillet in beef marrow. Oh. Yeah. Remember that time that we tried to uh, fry cheese? In the deep fryer, but it just yeah. <laughs> kept like making the oil really gross because it melted and got all nasty. And yeah, we, we didn't have any concept of how to no. deep fry foods. And we tried a lot of different things. We actually did a thing called deep fried Saturday night for a while. Yeah, where uh, we'd wear togas. We wore togas. I don't know why, but and it was nobody there, just you and me. Yeah. We got this deep fryer and decided, <laughs> let's put on togas and just fry shit. That was a good time. What did we fry? We fried bananas. Yeah. Uh, we fried cookies. Uh, we fried. We tried frying cheese. That we did uh, broccoli and cauliflower. Right, right. Sponge cake. Yeah, we, there was. Was it sponge cake or we, angel food? It, cake? Angel food cake. Yeah. yeah, that was my favorite. That was really good. Let's talk about French toast. That's a popular holiday breakfast. At least in my house, it always was. It seems a bit regal and elegant, doesn't it? No, I have a very unpopular take in that I think French toast is gross. Who are you? I know. What are you drunk? <laughs> It was actually developed by uh, poor European families to use their stale bread. They could only afford to buy the old stale bread. And so to make make it edible, they would moisten it with milk and eggs and then fry it up. So yeah. That's, yeah, that seems right. Mm -hmm. It seems like something that would have been created out of necessity and not because it's a good idea. <laughs> it's like the, the story of how waffles became... Um, a thing. I don't know about waffles. I, I, this is, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what my mom told me when I was little. Oh, okay. Okay. That waffles, it, it goes back to the times of um, like knights, knights in, yes, knights in shining armor. Uh -huh. And they would make these breakfast cakes, like pancakes. Sure. And, but by cooking them on the stone uh -huh. on a, by a fire. And accidentally, one time, a knight in his armor sat on it. And created little divots in it, and he realized that it it held the butter and syrup in. So I would always picture like this knight in shining armor walking around with a bottle of Aunt Jemima's pancake syrup and a stick of butter. I know that your mom was a great storyteller. Yeah. Um, so you don't think that's true? I, I can't say. No. I don't have the data on okay. that. <laughs> well, this I know is true. The ice cream cone was invented because of tuberculosis. What? Yeah. That's an excellent topic starter, even if it's not true. <laughs> Back in the 19th century, when they sold ice cream, they sold it at like drugstore fountains, ice cream fountains. And at shoppies. <laughs> the ice cream shoppies. And they would serve them in small bowls. Mm-hmm. You've seen the old-fashioned ice cream sundae dish. They had little miniature versions of those, and they would put—they called them penny licks. And they would put just you know, like a couple of tablespoons of ice cream into this miniature, what looked like a glass ice cream cone. And the people who bought it would eat it and then lick the inside of the um, of the dish mm -hmm. and hand it back to the ice cream guy, the soda jerk, mm -hmm. if you will. And they would rinse it out and use it again. And because of that, it spread tubercul a lot of diseases, but it led to, in many ways, the, an explosion in uh, tuberculosis infection. 
So they invented ice cream cones rather than washing the dishes? That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Macaroons. Oh, they're so pretty. Not delicious. They are pretty. They're popularized in France, but they actually come from Italy. Well, it sounds like macaroni. That's true. Catherine de Medici's Italian pastry chefs are thought to have uh, brought this recipe over from um, when, when, when she married uh, the Duke d'Orleans. Oh, honestly, I shouldn't say that macaroons aren't delicious. Probably if I had like a real macaroon from a real macaroon. A macaroonery? Patissiere. Then uh, I would be like, this is amazing and delicious, but I've only had like, you know, yeah. Kroger macaroons. <laughs> Pozole, a traditional Mexican stew. Am I pronouncing that correctly? P-O-Z-O-L-E, Pozole, Pozoli? Po- you know, I don't know. Okay. Well, it has its origins in cannibalism. Pre-Hispanic people prepared it with the flesh of human sacrifices during festivals. Um, the tradition of making pozole or pozzoli on special occasions survives, but they, they skip the whole human flesh part and substitute pork instead. And where is this supposedly from? It's a Mexican stew. All right. Nestle's Toll House Cookies. I'm getting set to bake some of those a little later on this afternoon. Yes, you are. Nestle bought the chocolate chip cookie recipe from the Toll House. Nestle Toll House. For one dollar. Oh. So that was a good investment. Yep. Christmas morning, you'll probably have some orange juice. Frozen concentrate. That was invented by the government. Oh, was it kind of like a rations type thing? Yeah. Like government cheese style? Sort of, yeah. During World War II, the U.S. needed some kind of a, a way to easily transport uh, a source of vitamin C to the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So they came up with frozen concentrated orange juice. And in the late 40s and going into the 50s, it was mass advertised as uh, tasty and healthy and pretty much become a staple. When I, I, I don't drink concentrated orange juice anymore. I did a lot when I was a kid, but I still really enjoy eating concentrated orange juice with a spoon. Really? You did that as a kid? Yeah. I mean, I still would. If we had some right now, I would eat that shit. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to write that It is delicious. I'm still looking for stocking stuffers for you. (laughs) Why is my stocking dripping? Eggnog was invented in medieval Britain. Man, they liked putting eggs in things. They did. That's what medieval actually means, time when people put eggs in things. Yeah. The ingredients for eggnog were so expensive back then that uh, nobility, uh, royalty, and and aristocratic class used eggnog as a toast to show off their wealth. So it's just like, here are a bunch of things that are expensive. I'm going to put them in a glass and show you. Yeah, that's it. it. Here are some things that you'll never be able to have. Cheers. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um, Nog. Yes. What's that mean? Definition of nog. A strong ale, formerly brewed in Norfolk, England... I've heard of grog. Is it grog-like? I think grog was, was grog Viking-y? I envision a bunch of uh, beastly-looking men in armor, probably more often than I should. Grog is any of a variety of alcoholic beverages, uh, originally referred to a drink made with water and rum. Hmm. But then there's that meat 
meat booze, too. Remember that guy at the brewery was talking about the meat booze? Yeah, I don't remember what that was, though. Anyway, I've gotten us way off topic. Sorry about that. Nog. In the Middle Ages, they used bread as a plate. They would bake flat, thin loaves of bread. Like a naan? Kind of. They called it trencher bread. And in many cases, it was just regular bread that had gone stale. But uh, sometimes they specially created, they specially baked trencher bread to use as a plate. And once they were done using it as a plate, they would give the plate to the poor people to eat. Oh, okay. At least it was flavorful. While they were toasting them with nog. Right. I still love a bread bowl. Especially like with French onion soup. I like a broccoli cheddar, but whatever. Fortune cookies. Most of the fortunes in fortune cookies came from one guy. His name was Donald. He was the chief fortune cookie writer at Wonton Foods, and they claimed to be uh, America's largest fortune cookie manufacturer. He wrote fortunes for the cookies for 30 years. Wow. And he retired recently, like I think 2017, because he said he had a writer's block. I can imagine after 30 years yeah. of... You just, I'm out. I would hope that he has a comprehensive Excel sheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'd yeah. be like, a uh, new venture will be prosperous for you. Wait, oh, no, you've used that yeah. one already. All right. Uh, what about a new venture will be Donald prosperous. needs his own Zach. <laughs> Did you know pizza was originally a dessert? No. Yeah. For centuries, it was a sweet food. It included ingredients like currants and jam. Mm. Savory pizza recipes with ingredients like tomato and mozzarella only started to show up in the 20th century. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I had a dessert pizza at a baby shower I went to one time. It was like, instead of crust, it was like a cookie. And then there was like a cream cheese base. And then there was fruit on top of it. And like some sort of weird drizzle. And it was amazing. Pop-Tarts. That was a result of innovations that were made by General Foods when they produced dog food. Oh. In the early 60s, they used a, a certain type of technology that uh, let their Gainsburgers dog food patties stay fresh without refrigeration. And that process led them to create a breakfast pastry. And General Foods owned Post, so Post Toastums was the original version. We think of that as more of a knockoff, Mm -hmm. but Kellogg's immediately stole Post's idea and created Pop-Tarts. Oh, that must be frustrating. Pound cake. You know why it's called pound cake? Because it weighs a pound? Yeah, well, it's because the recipe was created for illiterate cooks in the 1700s. For simplicity, the recipe calls for one pound of each ingredient. Oh, smart. Yeah. I went to a, I don't know why so many parties are coming up right now, but I went to a housewarming party once that was called a a pound party. And well, I know that sounds it terrible, but. It means something entirely different in my neighborhood right, growing well, up. They didn't have the basement set up yet. Um, so it was like <laughs> you had to bring a pound of something that would help them start their household. So, like a pound of flour or a pound of nails or a pound of wow. screws. Wow. Or, yeah. And it was, it was fun. It was a fun idea to see like what kinds of things people came up with, you know, to bring a pound of. Probably that kind of pound party was a lot easier to clean up after. Ancient Romans used, well, they had their own version of wedding cake 
for marriage ceremonies, but it wasn't like the soft, spongy kind of cake that we have today. It was made out of uh, wheat or barley. And the tradition was, after the ceremony, to signify the marriage was sealed and would bring good fortune, the groom would break the cake over the bride's head. Okay. Okay. Huh. Kind of the precursor to shoving cake in faces. I guess so. Everybody does now, and it's just not that funny. We did not do that. Uh, I don't even think we ate cake at our wedding. No, I don't think so. I mean, we had one, and I was told it was delicious, but I don't remember eating any of it. I think you saved the top, but you left it in in the back of your car for like a week, and so we, we just threw it away. That sounds right. What was the cake that I was eating on the floor that time? Was that wedding cake? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it was after the reception and you were sitting on the floor eating cake. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there's some stuff to start conversations during your holiday get-togethers. In other words, something to act as a deflection from you having to interact with people. I like it. Happy holiday. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Keeping with our food topic, uh, the thing in the middle is weird condiments from around the world. Sauces make everything better. Number five, Filipino ketchup. It's basically a spicy banana sauce. What? Yeah. Number four, Jutgal, it's a Korean sauce made of deceased sea creatures. Mostly fish guts and roe and shellfish. And is, that the, is that the stuff that they let kind of like... Ferment? Ferment? No. Yeah. It's fresh dead sea creatures. Oh, oh good. Well, I don't know. At least it's fresh. Number three, Piccalili. It's been popular since the 17th century. It's a blend of mustard, turmeric, and vegetables, and has been described as looking and smelling like cat vomit. Oh. Bon appetit, mon frere. Number two, smorgas caviar. It's a Scandinavian sauce or condiment uh, that involves packing fish roe and mayonnaise together and squeezing it onto everything. Number one, tequimali. 
It's made from sour Georgian plums, and it's kind of it's like a national condiment in Georgia, the Eastern European nation. It looks like ketchup, but it's often described as pungently tart. That does not sound amazing, but I'd be happy to try it. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. We just love this time of year. The lights, songs, and decorations. The food. The drink. Oh, the drink. Saying something inappropriate to a co-worker after a few too many. Getting fired because of it. Telling your damned spouse you're out of work. Again. We just love this time of year. This is the Box of Oddities. Dr. Samuel West. Um, he's a psychologist and he is also the creator of a museum called the Museum of Failure. And Ooh. he was uh, reading an article about meat consumption and the uh, worldwide environmental effects uh, based on factory farming. And he became very interested in finding alternate protein sources for us as humans because uh, he doesn't see meat eating as being sustainable, sustainable. long term. Okay. And um, so he's doing this research about alternate protein sources. And throughout his studies, d he discovered that there were a lot of foods all over the world that we don't see, that we uh, might think of as weird or strange or, dare I say, disgusting. Uh-huh which led to his new project called the Disgusting Food Museum. I love this. Which is in Sweden. Okay, okay. So this is a museum in a city called Malmo, M-A-L-M-O, Malmo, Sweden, uh, where visitors can smell, touch, and taste 80 different foods that are considered disgusting across the world. All right, give, give me a, a cross segment here. I'm doing it right now. Excellent. So 
West, who am on the website, his title is curator and chief disgustologist. <laughs> uh, he said, if you ask people if they want to eat bugs, they say, no, that's gross. And that's the obstacle. But he's hoping that he can make them reconsider. So some of the things that you will find in the disgusting food museum, uh, Ha Carl which is a fermented shark from Iceland. A bull penis is available that's, at the Disgusting Food Museum. Wow. That's not something you'd find at a ballpark. Was that meant to be a pun? No. <laughs> Quay mm-hmm. was one of the items, uh, which you and I have a little bit of experience with yeah well yeah that's that's guinea pig that's roasted guinea pig yeah and very uh, popular in the andes yeah in in ecuador which is a place we love to go and and visit that is um a delicacy it is a traditional dish and you'll just see skinned guinea pigs on spits being roasted on the street corners yeah and we respect their culture you know that's cool it's just as gringos, mm-hmm. you know, we look at it and go, um, let's go over here. They have a nice rice dish. And that's part of the the point of this museum is to uh, introduce people to these foods that, yes, sure. are, are different mm-hmm. and maybe con- disgusting to us. Uh, but also they are foods. They are things that people eat. Sure. And uh, culture com- plays such a big role in what we consider food. Uh, fruit bats also uh, on the menu at the now, disgusting food. Do they food do fruit museum. bats taste like fruit? I don't think so. Hmm. Cher- cherry's always my favorite. Surstroming, which I'm not sure that I've pronounced that correct, but that's uh, fermented herring, and uh, that is also featured at the museum in a couple of different ways, and we'll get into that. Other notable foods in the exhibit include spicy rabbit heads from China, fermented mare's milk from Kazakhstan, an Asian wine made of baby mice, and sheep eyeball juice. Well, that sounds that just sounds delicious. The museum's employees have sampled about 50 of the 80 disgusting foods on display. Is that a prerequisite to work there? I think you have to have tried at sure. least something. Yeah. Yeah, you have to know what you're talking about. Right. And uh, Andreas Ahrens, who is the museum's director, his favorite exhibit is the Kasu Marzu, which is the uh, maggot cheese from Sardinia. It's quoted here. uh, You said maggot and cheese in the same sentence. Yeah. Oh, also, if you're eating right now, you should stop. Yeah. I absolutely love the Kasu Marzu, he revealed. It's a beautiful exhibit. The larvae can jump up to 15 centimeters, so you have to cover your eyes when you're eating it. Otherwise, the maggots will jump into your eyes. Yeah. So you need protective eyewear. Any dairy product that requires protective eyewear, I will pass. You're out. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Aaron's explained another goal is to inspire visitors not to judge the food of other cultures as critically, but realize that disgust is a personal thing and it's subjective. I get that. It's shaped by our upbringing, which I try to keep in mind when I think of, let's say, the Sukayu cheese, which is made from the stomach of a baby goat filled with its mother's milk, which is reported to taste a little bit like gasoline. 
Why don't you just drink gasoline? Oh, gasoline's not food. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Durian also, of course. Oh, uh, that's that that fruit that makes people throw up when they smell it. That's right. It is the world's smelliest fruit, described by one food writer as a mix of onions, turpentine, and gym socks. <laughs> what is that show that that used to be on the Food Channel, the Travel Network, that disgusting sh- uh, food show where the guy travels all over the world and eats horrible-looking things? Bizarre. Bizarre foods. or I can't remember. Yeah, it was on I, years ago. I enjoyed that. It was a pretty good show. He was a good host. Yeah, he was. And he ate some of this durian fruit, but the people that gave it to him made him go out in the yard to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> go sit outside on the gazebo. You're not coming in here. And though, though we do see these things as gross, again, the point of the museum is to expand sure. our understanding of cultures and uh, try to like desensitize us um, to the idea of what is gross because insects, great source of protein. That is true. And uh, maybe something that we should consider as a food source. I I can't remember the um, statistic off the top of my head, but you would be shocked to know how many insects we eat just while we're sleeping. Well, that I have seen those statistics as well. They're highly debated. Oh, are they? I heard once that like we eat six spiders a year because they get into our mouth while we sleep. I can't, I don't know. I mean, I believe it in this house because <laughs> I do not understand how the cobwebs appear uh, the way that they do. But it, anyway, we're getting sidetracked. So <laughs> to, uh, to prove the point about how what we know uh, determines what we think is gross, American foods such as root beer and jello are in the museum alongside the fried tarantula and the cooked guinea pigs. Really? If you give root beer to a Swede, according to Aaron's, they will spit it out and tell you that it tastes like toothpaste. Yeah, really interesting. Um, toothpaste. But huh. of course, we know the flavor, sure. we expect it. It's root beer, so yeah. we like it. And it's also kind of makes you consider what we like. And I mean, our brains are really the things that that tell us all of our senses and what they're doing. It's what we get used to. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of desensitization that goes along with the bombardment. There is a certain fast food chain that I didn't eat at for many, many, many years and many, 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 many years. And then one day I was running late for something. I needed something to eat. And I had a breakfast sandwich from this fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I realized this tastes like plastic. Yeah. But only because you'd been separated from it. Right. For a while. Yeah. And it's interesting because I used to really enjoy that particular breakfast sandwich. Mm -hmm. Um but it it doesn't taste like food to me anymore. Interesting. It, yeah, it tastes like a product. Uh, and uh, that's not to say that I want to eat testicles. It's just that oh, come on. Uh, you know, we try to be try not to be so judgy. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, we're sitting here going, ooh, ooh, and from our perspective, ooh. Mm-hmm. But come on, root beer? Keep that in mind. Root beer is gross to Swedish people. <laughs> The Swedes hate it. Spam also featured at the Disgusting Foods Museum. I've never had spam. Um, I I think I have an idea of what it's like. Mm-hmm. But um, I've had it. I've yeah. had it. Oh, sure. I've had it a lot. When I was growing up as a kid, that was, you know, a staple. 
back in those days. But that's just a meat product. That's not yeah. even like real meat. Well, it was developed during World War II mm-hmm. for the troops. And interestingly, there was a tribe in Papua New Guinea that uh, they gave a lot of the surplus spam to some of the troops did Mm -hmm. during World War II. And they loved it because in their opinion, it tasted like long pig. Humans. Humans. Human meat. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And of course, those were your ancestors. No, we don't know that. So um, when evaluating the uh, whether or not foods should be featured at the museum, They considered not only taste, smell, and texture, but also background, like whether or not animals were ill-treated during the making of the food. So foie gras, for instance, Ah. featured at the museum. Certain types of pork, uh, which may be considered as tasty, are also on display because of their connection to the factory farming industry. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the way that pigs are held in factory farms and you look at the antibiotics that are used to keep them, uh, quote-unquote, well, uh, when they're kind of mashed into that that living environment, um, they can be potentially life-threatening for humans. And so those foods are also featured in the museum because it's disgusting. Right, right. Interesting. So even though they touch upon some pretty serious subjects, they've also got a great... Ooh, I just smashed my straw. They've also got a great sense of humor about what it is that they're presenting. So uh, one of the features of the museum is a photo booth. And uh, you can have your photo (laughs) taken in there. While you're eating maggot cheese? No, while they're wafting in the smell of surstroming, which is the fermented herring uh, traditionally eaten at the end of August in Iceland. And apparently it is horrendous. How long do they ferment it for? The herring are caught in April and May when they're in prime condition, just about to spawn. They are put into a strong brine for about 20 hours, which draws out the blood, after which the heads are removed, the fish are gutted, and put into a weaker brine solution. The barrels are placed at a temperature-controlled room, kept at... 59 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Canning takes place at the beginning of July, uh, 10 days prior to the final product being distributed to wholesalers. It doesn't sound as horrible as maggot cheese. I, you know, everything there is uh, debatable, I suppose. I don't think that uh, Jello, you know, is super gross. But then I think about it and I go, oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's super kinda, gross. Kinda, when you think about how it's made and what mm. it's made of. Yeah, sure. But at least it has a great name, Jello, as opposed to sheep eyeball juice. <laughs> so, in addition to the awesome photo booth of Stink, they've also <laughs> got this incredible feature your tickets. When you buy your ticket for the museum, it is uh, flat, but if you open it up, it's a barf bag. And that's uh, great marketing. It really is. And Aaron's the the director um, has said that his wife is responsible for two of the nine vomits that they've had at the museum. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Now, who knows how many were in the privacy of the bathroom that people made it there. But these are the ones that uh, Hmm. didn't make it. Wow. Uh, Alongside the Sweden branch, the museum has opened a three-month pop-up in downtown L.A. in the Architecture and Design Museum. And that's actually going on right now through February 17th. So if you're in the L.A. area, you can see the uh, Disgusting Foods Museum pop-up. 
Oh my God, if you're one of the LA freaks, go there and try the maggot cheese and let us know. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, yeah or whatever. Just go there and try something. I want pictures of you putting that stuff in your mouth. Yes, please. And the reactions afterwards. That's pretty much what I have. <laughs> that's it, huh? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, that's fascinating and disgusting. Yeah, right? You see, leftovers, actually, sometimes they're better the second day. That's right. You know, reheated. Um, okay, so happy Thanksgiving to everyone, and we hope that uh, all of your holiday dreams come true this year. What kind of dreams are Thanksgiving dreams? Usually nightmares because I ate too much. <laughs> Don't forget, there's still time to enter the contest, get your friends into the box, and perhaps win yourself a one-year's membership to the Inner Circle of Freaks on Patreon. You get ad-free episodes, bonus stuff. You get episodes early. You Zoom with us once a month. You don't, I mean, you don't have to, but you can. You can find the link in the description for this episode. And hey, if you win it and you don't want to use it, it's a great Christmas gift for a fellow freak. Right? Or if you do win it and you want to keep it for yourself, a great holiday gift idea is a membership to the Order of Freaks. <laughs> or or order something from our merch page. We've got a lot of a lot of cool stuff on that. It seems like you feel like a lot of great gift ideas are box of oddities related. And this surprises you how? <laughs> we hope the kickoff to your holiday season is a wonderful one. And we look forward to, oh, I should say the boxofoddities.com is the website where you can find stuff like merch. Um, anyway, we hope this holiday season is everything that you hope it is, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts